0: Old newspapers are a wealth of information to satisfy the curiosities of those interested in history, past news and events, and day-to-day life. Small town newspapers have a relaxed feel, reporting on major news events, but also announce local happenings and recreational and social affairs in town. Sourced from a major cities newspaper from 1906, this episode features Edwin Sands, an old-time woodsman telling survival stories from north america's
1: forests like every other wood ranger i have been lost several times in all sorts of forests and conditions once i was hunting deer in a great forest in michigan the early morning start was under a blazing sun But when I had walked about five miles into the timber, everything turned a dull gray, and it looked like it would snow, of which none had fallen that season. A trifle uneasy, I circled and headed back for the village. About one o'clock, I realized I was lost, for the timber all around, and the general lay of the land was unfamiliar. There remained a single saving chance. The one-afternoon train would soon be entering the village. So I halted and listened intently, hoping to hear the sound of the whistle or the rumble of the long string of freight cars, the sound of which sometimes carries very far through windless woods. All that I was wanting was a general direction. At last... Faint and far, sounded a whisper of the expected railway sounds, but in the opposite direction. <laughs> Got turned around, I muttered, as I hastily took bearings, carefully keeping a chosen line. I pressed ahead at top speed. Then came utter dismay, for the roaring sounded louder and more evident. It was too near and too loud to be the noise of a train, and I felt highly uneasy, for I had only a few matches and one small sandwich. A while the get thoroughly lost in these woods might mean serious things, but there was nothing better to do than to press on toward a growling rumble. To my amazement, in time the sound deepened to continuous booming. Nothing but the breakers off from Lake Michigan pounding the sandy shore could make that noise. Still, the lake shore was better than nothing. When I finally reached the sandy strip with its wide main breakers, I knew that a turn to the right meant coming to Lumber Road sooner or later. It proved to be later. Sometime before midnight, an utterly exhausted dear traveller stumbled through the door of his home shack and had just enough steam left to give thanks. On another occasion, in these same woods, I figured, in a peculiar case of getting lost, a man desired rough grouse shooting for a day and borrowed my gun, which he promised to return that evening as I had arranged to shoot the following day. Evening came, but no gun was returned, so later I went to the man's shack, only to find his wife in great distress over his non-appearance. There was track and snow, so I took the trail. The lost man's tracks was as plain as day. For about a mile, it ran pretty straight into the woods, till the sign showed where he had killed one grouse. Then the trail bore off to the left, where he had shot a second grouse. After that, he became confused, presumably in pursuit of other birds. He lost his bearing, and soon after, he lost his powder flask, which I found. The tracks completed first a great circle, the man working to the left and passing almost within sight of his own house. He then continued following a second, smaller circle, then another, and another, each smaller than the previous one. Finally, I found the man seated upon a log with his back against a tree. The trail he had made must have looked like a clock spring to a bird's eye view. He was stiff, cold, and hungry. I gave him some nourishment, and he was soon ready and fit to tramp. The man explained that he had not fired signals because he had lost his powder flask that he had made no fire because of lack of matches, and that he had sat down because he couldn't take another step. But why the mischief? Did you backtrack yourself out when you realized you were lost? I inquired savagely. Never thought of that. He calmly replied. And then, there was a massive joke on me. For in following his course, I had managed to get pretty well wound up myself. There was no suitable tree to climb for an extended view. So, uh, we both had to backtrack after all. I reached home mad all true, for it had been an exasperating task, while my unfortunate salvage had just enough strength left to eat a few morsels and fall upon his bed. It is curious how similar is the effect of being lost upon different types of men. Some will at first laugh and make light of the matter while others become instantly afraid, but sooner or later one and all will be howling for help and finally go aimlessly charging through the woods. The fact is, few men know how to take care of themselves in an emergency. Probably they all have read more or less of the voluminous literature treating of the forest life. Yet, when the hour of trial comes, fear takes possession of them. And the book of knowledge vanishes like the mists of the morning. Hundreds of yards of the stuff, much of it by people who couldn't find their way out of a ten acre lot, have been published. Yet the readers continue to get lost. It is all wonderful to study the moss upon the north side of the tree, but a lost man may be in woods where there are no moss upon the side of any tree for miles. I have never could steer by the moss. And I've yet to meet a man who can. Then again, there is the theory that the heaviest branches of a tree are always upon the southern side. That would be interesting and extremely useful, if true. Which it is not. If applied to the wood at large, I have found the branch of any ordinary tree will best develop in the direction of the greatest amount of sunlight. In other cases, It is probable that any preponderance of heavier limbs toward any particular side of a characteristic growth would mean that the prevailing winds came from the opposite quarter. The wind has much to do with the shaping of trees, yet How often are seen magnificent elms, maples, dogwoods, oaks, and conifers standing isolated in broad pastures, exposed to the full fury of every wind that blows, yet remaining symmetrical, as though carefully modeled by some master hand? In such cases, if ever, the influence of unfavorable winds would have full play. Yet the trees in question are many times more shapely and better balanced than the average forest tree. The north side theory is all tommy rot. Find the way the worst winds blows and you will find which way your best tree will grow. When lost in the heavy woods, one's best course, when possible, is to climb a tall tree and endeavor to get some sort of bearings. In any event, keep going straight and as far as possible. If one travels far enough, he's bound to come out somewhere eventually. And just where that may be does not matter as long as one comes out at all. When working in strange woods, I endeavor to get into a narrow valley, or else to work along a stream. In either case, there is a little excuse for getting lost, for one can scarcely travel out of a valley without noticing the ascent. At the same time, the man on the stream has only to mark the flow at the starting point to learn if he is found up in the downstream, and be guided by the current when he decides to go back to Cab. To get lost in heavy timber is terrible enough, but... Dense growths are the worst, for on a cloudy day, one may wander aimlessly for miles, and the going be extremely difficult. I once got lost in a dense growth of Manitoba podlar. There was no sun, but there was a small stream. There was no tree large enough to climb. So I said to that stream, where thou ghost I go. And that stream led me through the hardest traveling within twenty miles and finally brought me out some seven miles from where I wanted to be. But it brought me out. What is termed a right-footed man will, when lost in the woods, gradually circle to the left while a left-footed man will rotate in the opposite direction. The circling characteristic is explained by the fact that a man will step a trifle farther upon his strongest side. A man will catch a fall-on or perform any rapid action with his most useful hand, whether right or left. If a searcher knows whether a lost person is right-handed or left-handed, it may aid in finding that person. The case of the late, unfortunate, lawn-eyed Hubbard perished in the wilds of Labrador is an illustration of the deadly peril that besets the explorer of inhospitable wilds. Hubbard was small in stature, but possessed courage like that of Sir John Franklin, Alicia Kent Kane, Nansen Perry, and other gallant ones who have faced the rigors of the Arctic. Hubbard got lost in forest country, and paid the extreme penalty of owning to the exhaustion of his food supply. In those regions, the game is not as abundant as most people imagine, and any food shortage, means gradual weakening of a physical strength. I once got lost in Manitoba Prairie, and eventually pulled out by trusting the intelligence or homing instinct of the horse which drew the buckboard. I was chicken-shooting, and had driven far into the trailless grass. At that season, there is a peculiar twilight in a far north, which is very baffling. A tenderfoot imagines that he can see quite clearly when in reality every trifling prominence of the prairie is distorted and indistinct. I pulled over in the sea of grass and totted it out. I was certain that Winnipeg lay about west by south, but the horse had a decided tendency to bear off in the opposite direction. <laughs> My friend in harness proved to be a fine animal. He veered outward and looked confident in his action. He went about four miles, and came to a wide ditch, which I knew was not very far from Winnipeg. The horse pounded straight ahead until I saw the light of Winnipeg. Fire, water, animals and birds may aid a lost man. For instance, I was shooting rough grouse in the unbroken woods of northern Canada. I paddled about five miles down a big lake, then hauled up the canoe and worked a bit farther than was wise into a big unfamiliar woods. But there were many grouse, of which not a few were bagged. Then came a distant roaring and a pungent odor of burning hemlock followed by unmistakable smoke. Clearly, the woods were on fire, and as clearly it behooved me to get back as fast as possible to the lake. I had neglected my bearings, but I knew the general route had been uphill. So I turned and ran downhill. For a moment, I was utterly lost. But water could be at the bottom of the slope, and water was solely needed. The flames were roaring almost overhead among the inflammable tops when I reached the lake shore. Luckily, I struck the water within twenty yards of the canal. I was afloat beyond the flames in very few moments, but it was a close call. So close, in fact, that the fire blistered the paint on the canoe for three feet from the bow. I was once lost in a broad area of Michigan poplars. I was shooting rough grouse, and after some lively sport, there came the realization of being lost. Not a pleasant thing in growth, which in every direction appears precisely alike, and in which an extensive view is impossible. Any attempt at climbing such small growth was useless. But, at last came the thought, that the ruffled grouse, when flushed, almost invariably make for tall timber. Because the heavy woods lay to the right, as indicated by the flight of the birds, the lighter cover and the sawing open must be at the left, so I bore off in that direction, and I came out all right. Again, I was lost and saved by a most peculiar foe and friend, a howling blizzard. It was on the bleak northern shore of Lake Superior, where I had gone in a quest of ptarmigan, which are similar to grouse. My guide was a noted Native American named Joe, and as we left our shack he looked troubled. He sensed the storm was brewing, but he said nothing, as I had to go then, or not go at all. It was a bitterly cold, grey day when we found and shot a few ptarmigan after snowshoeing for some miles. Then came the blizzard, and as there was no shelter nearer than the shack, we turned and ran for our lives. At the start, the snow was howling at our backs. At one point, in the heartbreaking race, Joe so outfooted me that for a short time he was hidden in a deadly wide blur. In the storm, tracks were obliterated as rapidly as they were made, so I ran on blindly, trusting to the wind holding its original direction. There was only one shelter, and the fact that I am writing today proves that the wind did hold true. A slide shift would have caused me to veer from my course and miss the almost snow-covered shack, and nobody could have attempted to backtrack against that storm. Once in the great woods of British Columbia, I had an experience that left me a believer in what some call the sixth sense. I was returning one night from a trapper's camp to my shack on the edge of the forest. In due time, I reached my destination and found one of those big-hearted, typical frontiersmen. My host had advised stopping with him until daylight, but I had an important transaction for the morning, and scoffed at the idea of getting lost on a perfectly plain trail. The path was a soft black bush mold, damp from recent showers. I swung along, my boots making not a sound. It was quite dark. I experienced a most extraordinary sensation, a strange feeling that seemed to creep down my spine, yet steadily increased, and drops of sweat beaded on my forehead. I couldn't understand it, but something seemed to command me to halt and turn around. Nothing was visible in the blackness. A few moments after resuming the salute, the strange feeling returned, and I turned around again but saw nothing. Now. I was a little more than scared. I knelt down, leveled my rifle about two feet above the back trail, and fired. Within a minute, a double shot sounded. Followed by a voice. Hello there! I answered quickly and came to a strange shack, and in front was an unknown man, gun in hand. He asked me what the shot was, and I told him what I felt as I walked along. I stayed with him for the night, and in the morning... He told me he wanted to show me something. The prints of my boots showed distinctively in the soft black dirt. And beside him was a row of enormous tracks that could have been made only by a monstrous mountain lion. The brute had followed me as I walked along the dark trail until I had fired my gun and had been scared away.
0: Edwin's stories tell of one man's wilderness adventures and exploits from over 100 years ago. Entering the woods well prepared is a prerequisite, both yesterday and today, no matter how different the available equipment and supplies may be between 1900 and now, because you never know when you may become lost, disoriented, or imperiled in the wild. Today's episode was hosted by Ian Scotto and written by Beverly Fraser. Special thanks to Fabian Gazin for his voice characterization of Edwin Sands.
1: Thank you for tuning in to another exciting installment of In the Wild. To hear more captivating stories of real-life survival, hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Stay prepared, because you never know when you may find yourself in the wild.